Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you, as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And very straightforwardly this week, we're going to be listening to the second part of my interview with the lawyer and university lecturer Adi Inka Mackinday on the subject of his forthcoming academic paper, Can the British State Convict Itself? Now, in the first part last week, we talked about then-UK Prime Minister Tony Blair's decision to take Britain to war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 2003. And uh, also, we talked about the fact that a good deal of legal opinion considers that decision to have involved participation in conspiracy to wage an aggressive war in contravention of established international criminal law. Well, in this second part now, we are going to we go on to discuss Britain's role in the US-led so-called extraordinary rendition of Islamist terror suspects and consider to what extent former UK Foreign Secretary Jack Straw was involved in that and indeed the former head of counterintelligence at MI6, Mark Allen. And uh, we end with a look at Britain's counterinsurgency strategy in Northern Ireland, which was initiated in the early 1970s by then Brigadier Frank Kitson. Of course, if you haven't heard the first part, I do highly recommend that you go back and listen to that before listening to this second part. Not only because that discussion about the Iraq war and Tony Blair was, I think, very interesting in its own right, but because Adi Inka gives some very important background to all this um, about international and UK domestic law, which I think helps to frame the whole discussion. So please do go back and listen to that first part if you haven't heard it already. So, as I say, in this part, we move on to questions surrounding rendition and also the troubles in Northern Ireland and continue to ask that question. Can the British state convict itself? Okay, well, I'd like briefly to look at the other couple of examples. We've talked quite a long time. I thought this was going to be a very interesting <laughs> conversation. I hope you don't mind. No, um, don't worry, don't worry. Wonderful. Well, um, the other examples you put in the article, you have extraordinary rendition, so-called extraordinary rendition, so black operation that was spearheaded by the CIA, and it turns out the UK was involved in that. And the other example is UK state involvement, indeed collaboration with paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland during the so-called Troubles. So let's start with the rendition. So this is the post 9-11 so-called war on terror program whereby alleged terror suspects were captured and flown to various sites around the world, so away from US soil, to places like Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Libya, Afghanistan, a number of other places. Um, and in some cases, they were subject to what most ordinary reasonable people would call torture, which is, of course, contrary to international law. Now, Jack Straw, Foreign Secretary at the time, I understand said that the UK did not have involvement in this. But that's not true, is it? The evidence actually points to the fact that that is absolutely not the case. It, the chances of it not being true are extremely slim, to be frank. The specific example I gave was of a man called um, uh, Hakim Belhaj. He was an exile from Gaddafi's Libya. He was an Islamist and uh, he was living in China at the time. He wanted to claim asylum in Britain. And so what the British government does is they say, okay, um, do come along. So he takes the flight or he wants to leave China. And I think the Chinese are a bit upset about it. So they deport him to Malaysia. And when he gets to Malaysia with his pregnant wife, he's told that, well, if you do want to claim uh, asylum in Great Britain, you'll have to go via Thailand. 
And so the moment he enters the plane going to Thailand, he is basically bound and uh, put in a stress position. When he arrives at Bangkok, he's um, transferred to what is known as a black prison, one of these prisons where the Americans would send people to be tortured by others. I believe that was the modus operandi because uh, they did recognize that torture is against uh, American municipal law, as indeed it has been in Britain for centuries. Right. And so this man does describe in detail how he was tortured, you know, hung by his wrists and uh, beaten and uh, all sorts of torture devices. And from Bangkok, he was then flown to Libya. But uh, before he got to Libya, his plane refueled at um, Diego Garcia, uh, which is in the Indian Ocean. And you see, each of these issues point to British involvement, as indeed it does point to their knowledge when um, this man was interviewed by um, agents of Muammar Gaddafi's uh, security service. Because first of all, that tip-off must have obviously come from the British, you know, go to Thailand. Landing in Diego Garcia, that was originally denied by the British because that is British territory, although leased to America. And um, also, while in Libya, he was interrogated in the presence of people he identified as British agents. But the main piece of evidence is a letter from Mark Allen, who was then the counterintelligence chief of MI6, writing to Musakusa, who's um, Gaddafi's security chief, basically congratulating Musakusa that um, the package, uh, he referred to Belhaj by pseudonym, but um, you know, it was recognized to be Belhaj, right. saying he's arrived safely and congratulating each other warmly or congratulating Musakusa on the warm relationship that they developed. Now, that note dated from March 2004, was discovered in the ruins of Gaddafi's security establishment after his fall, his overthrow in 2011. And Mark Allen and MI6 have never denied the authenticity of that letter. Okay, so we have a situation where this is a CIA-led program and the people who are carrying out the torture are not US citizens, they're not UK citizens. So what crime would the UK state have committed in this case? Uh, they would have facilitated torture. And so under the law, you are not uh, innocent if you facilitate. In fact, you are an aider and an abettor to a crime. And that's covered by Geneva Convention, and, uh, UN Convention, etc.? Yes, so international law covers this. Um, there is the uh, Geneva Convention uh, to do with it, but there, there is another... Uh, UN uh, Charter that uh, also covers it. And uh, also don't forget the European Convention on Human Rights um, also prohibits it under Article 3. And that is a non-derogable right for people not to be tortured in the sense that you cannot sort of qualify it at any point. Can you tell us what that word was and explain it, please? <laughs> yes. What non-derogable means is that you can't sort of modify it or qualify it in the way, for instance, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of expression. Everybody is allowed a freedom of expression, but so far, as long as you don't um, commit libel or defamation or you incite racial hatred, or we have freedom of movement, but obviously if we commit certain crimes we may be put into jail. So you can deviate 
from that right legitimately as governments. And uh, many examples are fairly logical. What it means is that with regard to torture, you have an absolute right. And that right cannot be bent or shaped or modified by governments. You can't place exceptions, you know, except if. And so um, in that sense, um, there's absolutely no excuse for such Mm. involvement. And I think you said that if it's under this aiding and abetting of a crime, this could actually be heard in the UK. That's on the statute book since the 19th century. Well, not the specific act. Um, The specific act Uh is uh, from 1988, the uh, Criminal Justice Act, Section 134. But you are correct to say that uh, torture has been uh, prohibited in the UK for centuries. You know, this is dating back uh, to before the English Civil War. The Privy Council, which is a senior body, not as powerful as it used to be in Britain, they used to issue warrants of torture. And that was stopped in 1628. And it was the uh, long parliament that existed before the outbreak of the English Civil War, which formally outlawed torture. So uh, Britain has a long history of prohibiting torture. And yes, it is a a crime under the Criminal Justice Act. And uh, effectively, um, it is, to use that uh, quaint legal phrase that has popped up in our conversations, it is justiciable in (laughs) domestic law. Yeah, it is a lovely phrase. Um, (laughs) So so this seems more cut and dry than what we were talking about before. There seems to be, yes, there really is something to hear. Surely this needs to be dealt with. And yet the Metropolitan Police has concluded there's insufficient evidence. Is that it? That's it. I mean, it, it really is so vague. It really is as vague as that. And, and part of the announcement by the Crown Prosecution Service made a vague allusion to this issue of whether Mark Allen, for instance, had been given that uh, authorization by Jack Straw, uh, which we talked about, Section 7 of the Intelligence uh, Services Act. Um, I mean, that was a bit curious because it was drawing attention to this issue. And uh, as we said, well, if Jack Straw did give him authorization, uh, well, you know, that would give Alan immunity. But then it will bring into question uh, uh, Jack Straw's uh, reasonableness in actually making that authorization and making it a point that could be tried. But basically, Crown Prosecution Service uh, has posited something uh, that is um, not really tenable to say there's no evidence, given, for instance, the letter we've referred to and the compelling evidence of Mr. Bell Hodge. And another thing to add to that is that there was a review of the case a month or two afterwards. The review was actually conducted by staff who were junior to the people who had made the decision not to prosecute. So you can see how uh, upset interested parties were about that. I mean, if you were in a junior position in an organization, is it likely that you're going to overturn the decision reached by your seniors, you know, your bosses? Yes, indeed. It does say something. I mean, do you think there's any chance of this particular can of worms being reopened? Or is that, has the pronouncement been made and everybody thinks, oh yeah, well, Metropolitan Police have said, that's it. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, um, yes, given the fact that um, there isn't that sort of will to challenge it. You know, you know, for instance, uh, randomly, there was that uh, Stephen Lawrence case about the black youth who was murdered in South London. And when his uh, alleged attackers were not apprehended, a private prosecution was taken. 
which failed, but eventually um, they were tried and uh, some of them were tried and convicted. So there has to be that public groundswell. And of course, a lot of people have been more attached to the issue of Tony Blair, but less to this issue, which as you've just um, said correctly, on a procedural level and uh, an application of the substantive law, there appears to be a really almost clear-cut case, but certainly more than prima facie evidence, you know, something that is clearly triable in the court of law. So, again, it just boils down to the willingness of the authorities and also to public pressure. And I suppose there's a sense in which the public has become inured to this because it's been talked about so much. That in itself, I think, might make people think, oh, well, you know, we've heard about this before, and so it doesn't really give you much of an impetus to get up and shout down the streets. Um, yes. Okay, well, let's move on to this final example here. So this is the British state involvement with terror groups in Northern Ireland between, I guess, the late 60s up into the 90s, until um, the Good Friday Agreement 1998. Now, before reading your article, I was aware of evidence that... MI5 had sponsored infiltrators to get inside various loyalist paramilitary groups, thousands indeed, um, and some of these individuals were responsible for murder of IRA suspects, even civilians, while being supported by British military intelligence. And I do recommend people, if they haven't seen the documentaries, to take a look at uh, a couple of very good BBC Panorama productions. I'll just name them. If you can get hold of them, they really are worth looking at. So I'm recommending here Britain's Secret Terror Deals, fairly recent, a couple of years or so ago, and A Licence to Murder. I'm not quite sure when that comes from. I think it might be the 1990s. But I wasn't familiar with the MRF, the Military Reaction Force, and General Sir Frank Kitson. Could you tell us something about him and this MRF unit and why that's important for the points you're making? Yes, I think um, I wanted to focus on this area because this was at the beginning of the Troubles. And as you said, just as a a casual observer, I remember in my youth, you know, you'd hear news from Northern Ireland. I think the impression definitely in the news media was that there was a shoot-to-kill policy in Northern Ireland. We saw that in regard to the way um, the SAS um, apparently executed three IRA suspects in Gibraltar and also the murder of a Belfast lawyer named Pat Finucane. And so, and also there was the stalker inquiry investigating the, this uh, issue of um, shoot to kill. So I think it certainly hung in the air. And, you know, just before I settle in on the MRF and Kitson, I think the denouement of the Northern Ireland situation is important because at the end of the day, in an objective reading of it, the IRA was defeated. And the question is, if shoot to kill and other covert activities of dubious morality was employed to achieve this, where does this leave the British state? Is it justifiable? And I think um, it's worth just considering that. But the reason I bring this up is because these members of the MRF, some of who have started talking, feel that they were pioneers in this very rough and ready, ruthless, brutal strategy of first containing and then destroying um, armed resistance from the Irish uh, Republican movement. They want to take some credit for that. So the MRF, um, which stands for Military Reaction Force, 
was a organization of uh, British military soldiers working plain clothes to counter the insurgency of the Irish Republican movement, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And Frank Kitson is seen as a sort of a, a bogeyman in Northern Ireland, as being this ruthless British Army officer who um, brought this outfit onto the streets of Belfast, who shot innocent uh, bystanders who were civilians and who also murdered in cold blood uh, suspected IRA shooters. Now, what I try to argue is that uh, Frank Kitson is more than just a spiritus rector of the strategy in Northern Ireland, which was to counter the insurgency by these means, um, that actually he was, evidence shows that he was actually the initiator. And um, what it is, is to explain the MRF, you have to explain Kitson's philosophy. And Frank Kitson, as a junior officer going through the ranks, he was uh, a soldier, a young soldier in the waning years of empire. So he served in Malaya and in Kenya against insurgencies in both countries. And both of these insurgencies were effectively neutralized. And Kitson was the developer of uh, a military strategy, a covert strategy of counterintelligence based on books that he wrote. I think um, he referred to it as gangs and counter gangs. So in other words, what he said was that when you have an insurgency, what you need to do is you need to create a parallel organization from the regular military that is trying to counter this insurgency and that this um, counter gang will imitate the methods of the terrorist organization or the insurgent organization. So what you do is you infiltrate that organization, you get traitors among them, you turn them, and that did happen in um, Northern Ireland. Uh, they call them Freds for some reason or another. And so once you turn them and you infiltrated them, you can get information on them and you can build up a database on them. And you use that information eventually to seek them out. Either you assassinate them or you blackmail them in some way. You turn them and get them to work for you. And when they're working for you, or when you are imitating them and their methods, you also have the opportunity to sow confusion in the minds of the public. You can commit what are known as false flag operations. So in the MRF, we're responsible, for instance, at shooting at um, those people who are manning barricades in Catholic communities. Uh, not all of them were armed. Many of them were just locals doing their bit to help um, it was an illegal act, of course, but um, MRF soldiers did fire upon them and uh, in instances did kill people, many of them innocent people. And so um, when this occurred, the Ministry of Defense would issue an announcement that, um, yes, somebody was killed in a drive-by shooting and it is motiveless. So what in effect was happening there was that they were in effect saying that a loyalist gang had shot at the Catholic barricade. And so 
the method behind um, Kitson's um, logic was that with this background, you can get the IRA to fight it out with the loyalist groups because don't forget the IRA were attacking British troops. Right. So part of Kitson's philosophy is draw fire away from the British army, get two groups to fight it out, either an alternative group or groups within that uh, insurgent body, so divisions within themselves so that you can blame incidents on a particular faction mm-hmm. or an alternative mm-hmm. group to draw fire away from the British army. And of course, the other aspect, the other rationale behind it was that um, if you had infiltrators who were turned IRA infiltrators, you could get them to uh, point out who the members of the IRA were. And the MRF did that because there were two key defectors from the IRA in those early days. And what happened is they were put into uh, armoured personnel carriers, which went through Republican areas. And through the slits in the uh, carrier, they could take pictures. And so those pictures were used by uh, MRF soldiers to, quite frankly, assassinate IRA shooters. And that is contrary to the law because the troops in Northern Ireland were guided by something called the Yellow Book, which um, laid stringent rules as to when you should open fire. You know, it was soldiers operating within the law. The MRF operated outside of the law. You also say, though, that there were civilians who were caught up in this as well, who were Uh, were fired upon by these pseudo-gangs to be blamed on real loyalist gangs. Absolutely. And um, to this day, um, the members of their family are still trying to find justice. And I must say that while people may be in denial and be partisan about certain things, you know, oh, my son would not commit a crime like that. He was never a member of the IRA. Some of these, uh, a lot of these are actually provable because if uh, this young 18-year-old dies and his name did not appear on a death notice by the IRA, or his body is not buried in a cemetery, a recognized Republican Army cemetery, that is enough evidence to show that this person was not a part of the IRA. So it was a very cynical attempt. And I I must say, apart from one of Kitson's ideals, apart from setting up IRA or insurgents for assassination and apart from creating false flag incidents to sort of get the loyalist gangs to fight with the IRA gangs and draw fire from the British, part of the method was also to sow insecurity within the civilian population so that if they see the IRA being targeted by these unknown forces or if they feel they are being shot at random and without any sort of uh, warning that um, the people would turn away from the IRA because they would basically say, you can offer us no protection. So that was part of the rationale. And this was under the auspices of military intelligence, UK military intelligence. Absolutely. So this makes it absolutely ridiculous what David Cameron said when he was prime minister, that the intelligence services are not involved in terrorist attacks. There are cases where that, in fact, has taken place. Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, that's the whole idea of plausible deniability or outright lying. It has to be said because I think they want to protect, uh, obviously, the reputation of Britain as a whole and the integrity of, um, you know, the the British army. Uh, It's um, very far from the case. 
In fact, the MRF had to be disbanded because two of those major turncoats were discovered to be traitors by the IRA. And actually, the IRA then used them to gain information about the MRF's operations. And the IRA mounted an attack because part of the method of the MRF was um, surveillance. So, So on one level, it was basic uh, surveillance and intelligence gathering. And then they also acted as this anti-terrorist force, uh, a ruthless anti-terrorist force. Now, what they did is they worked in stealth. They pretended to be meth cases, you know, literally lying in gutters, pretending to be drunk or stupefied. They would pretend to be bin men. Uh, They would pretend to be press photographers with passes. And also they ran a laundry So um, the IRA was actually drawn. And this laundry had a purpose because, you know, if it's in a local Republican area, uh, people who happen to belong to the IRA would take their clothes there. And uh, immediately you can imagine them sending clothes for forensic testing just to see if uh, a person had been uh, involved in munitions or guns, that, that sort of thing. So uh, the MRF, um, so they were attacked and... um, there was a bit of loss of life. The IRA eventually executed those uh, traitors uh, to their cause and uh, buried them secretly. Um, but yes, uh, this was carried on. So even though the MRF was disbanded sometime in 1973, I think it lasted just short of two years from what we know because all the operational records have been destroyed. And so they say, It has to be said, you wouldn't even keep operational records in the first place Hmm. for this sort of thing. But um, as we started uh, the conversation in this uh, area, the MRF was simply followed by similar military intelligence units. Um, One was called the um, Reconnaissance. uh, The name has sort of slipped my mind. Uh, Also also known as... um, 14 Intelligence Company, uh-huh. uh, deeply uh, uh, embedded in uh, British military intelligence. And also there was uh, something called uh, the Force Research Unit. And the Force Research Unit was, as you mentioned, involved in dealing with loyalist terror groups and giving them information uh, with which to assassinate uh, members of the IRA. Uh, the Force Research Unit also provided the British SAS, the Special forces unit uh, with information to strategically also um, take out IRA people. Um, I think such as was the case um, with in Gibraltar, you know, the three who were gunned down. Well, it just crossed my mind, because we're talking about the possibility of justice with respect to all this. And I was thinking of Kitson himself. I understand that he's still alive. I think I've got that right. Is it for certain that the MRF is his baby or is it just uh, a suspicion? Yes, as I mentioned before, I I think it's definitely more than a a suspicion. It's absolutely true that um, many of the officers who served in Northern Ireland had been influenced by Kitson's ideas, which effectively became the counterinsurgency doctrine of the British military. And I think that still is the case to this day. Kitson shares that distinction with um, Robert Thompson, another British army officer, but um, his own is the prevailing one. But um, as I said, he's more than the spiritus rector. And uh, The spiritus rector is precisely what? The sort of the, the guiding light. Yes. Know, the, uh, uh-huh. the person who represents uh, it. And he certainly was that, but... Um, more hands-on than that. <laughs> he was more hands-on because I think um, 
First of all, we have an admission from Lord Carver. He told uh, Mark Urban, who's a historian and a journalist, um, and he wrote a book about the SAS and the secret struggle against the IRA. Lord Carver, who was um, Baron Carver, long-serving uh, British military officer who rose to the rank of the head of the British um, army staff, he was the chief of staff and also the equivalent of the what the Americans call the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the head of the uh, British Armed Forces. So a very distinguished um, heart of the establishment man. He had served in Kenya. Uh, he, was, he was actually in charge of administration. He was a senior rank to Kitson. And he'd also, he was also serving as an advisor in Northern Ireland in the early 70s. And he did uh, tell Mark Urban that... Um, Kitson set up the MRF, you know, starting off as this plainclothes body of British uh, army personnel who were trained to sort of mount the missions that uh, we were just uh, describing and to infiltrate the IRA. So what happened is that Kitson had the permission of his superiors to create the MRF and they, they accepted that. The MRF, by the way, operated outside of um, what is known as Palace Barracks in Hollywood, which is just uh, to the east of Belfast in County Down. That is where um, Kitson's headquarters uh, were. There was actually a trial of a Sergeant Clive Williams in the early 70s, you know, for one of these uh, drive-by shootings in which people were injured. And uh, Williams was actually put on trial for attempted murder. He was acquitted, to cut the long story short, but he did identify in open court that he was a member of this body known as the MRF, the Military Action Force, and that his, you know, that unit was attached to the 39th Infantry Brigade, which was Kitson's Brigade, 39 Air Portable, it's also, it's also known as. So, you know, Carver's evidence essentially ties him into the creation of the MRF. And let's not forget General Mike Jackson, uh, who in his memoirs referred to, you know, Kitson's uh, incisive thinking and his uh, great abilities. And he actually described Kitson as the sun around which the planets revolved. Right. So that's (laughs) the fact that other people were senior to him. He, as as Mike Jackson said, he, he, he said he... He sort of, um, he set the operational tone. Right. And it has to be set. He set the operational tone in, in, in Northern Ireland at the time. And MRF activities were consistent with Kitson's location and the, the area of coverage, which was Belfast and the eastern part of the province. Right. You know. And, and it's interesting you should say this operational tone, because one could imagine perhaps that the MRF gradually sort of evolved into something rather unpleasant. Perhaps it didn't start that way, but actually you have a quote from 1971 with Kitson on camera, yeah. and it seems at that time he's that kind of guy already. Um, I'll just quote this. In order to put an insurgency campaign down, one must use a mix of measures, not just military measures, and it is sometimes necessary to do unpleasant things, which lose a certain amount of allegiance for a moment in order to put your overall results. I mean, if you're going to lose a certain amount of allegiance, that's got to be pretty nasty. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's not forget, Julian, it, it, it did work in Malaya. It worked in Kenya. Yeah. You know, this is the brutal reality. Um, you have to note the moral consequences. This man is working for king and country. 
He's a talented man, uh, and, and he was well rewarded. Kitson, he became the aide de camp general to Her Majesty the Queen, right. and very well revered. I think um, uh, you may or may not know that um, General Petraeus, before he mounted the insurgency against the then successful uh, Sunni um, uh, insurgency, which was claiming American lives, he actually paid a visit to Kitson prior to implement in his plan. <laughs> oh dear, well now you've said that, I mean, that almost answers my question. What chance is there for justice here? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you, you say that a lot of the documentation, if it ever existed anyway, it has been destroyed. This seems to be something that comes up again and again and again when I you know, think of Sir John Stevens' investigations into these kinds of matters again and again. Well, there, there was a fire. Oh, <laughs> there was a flood, etc. Um, yes. Now, I'm suspicious of this. I looked at the Wikipedia article about John Stevens here, and it says that there have been 97 convictions following the UK government's 2012 recognition of those findings. But that claim has no source, and it's noted there in the Wikipedia article, so I'm suspicious of that. Um, what, what's your knowledge on that? Has, has justice yes. been done with respect to any of these things? Uh, not as far as I know. Not as far as I know. And... Um, as I said, I think people are very protective of their soldiers. I mean, even those, say, in America, certainly in Britain, who know that their military personnel were involved in an unjust war, they are, in a sense, rather protective of them. You know, particularly, obviously, those who are not involved in any what might be termed um, nefarious activities, you know, as being people who are just following orders. Um, and certainly some people would feel that, um, well, they, they can t change their tune, I, I think. Some people might just think, well, all I remember was the IRA blowing up uh, places and maiming people and uh, you do what you, you need to do to get the job done. And um, that, in this sense, I think does separate it from, you know, talking about Tony Blair and um, the other instances. I, I think that um, it's very partisan and obviously what has been involved here is plain murder yeah, and conspiracy to murder on the part of senior officers and the members of the R MRF and the SAS when they've been brought in and uh, they've used loyalist paramilitaries as proxies to assassinate uh, Republican lawyers like Pat Finucane. Um But it, it is a, a one hell of a moral conundrum um, British state seems to have achieved what it wanted in the sense that one way of looking at it from the Republican point of view was that the conflict ended in a stalemate and it was followed by political compromise, you know, and the likes of Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness were brought in from the cold and are now respectable members of the state. Uh, but on the other hand, the IRA did not achieve its goal. Its goal was to forced the withdrawal of British troops as a prelude to the reunification of Ireland, and that did not happen. Right, so as far as the British state is concerned, you could look upon this as a quite a success, That's and so that would be, well, if we're going to go right to the beginning of our conversation, as a Machiavellian kind of, well, it worked, so we did the right thing. Absolutely, and you know, that's why these MRF uh, members, who were, who were careful not to implicate themselves and to be disguised in a Panorama interview, but uh, I believe they feel that since they were the pioneers of this ruthless counter-terrorism method uh, of the British Army, feel that um, they want some credit 
for that because it is considered among the the political, the military classes and um, even a lot of uh, British academics in this field has been a success for, for Britain, the British state. Well, you know, that's quite sad because I want to ask you what the realistic prospects are for any of these things to be tried, any of this justice to be done. But you having said that presents a tremendous barrier. There's not going to be will coming from the top. Why would the establishment want to prosecute itself? It seems to me that it's only going to come from the grassroots, so to speak. But what can any of us do to create enough pressure from below to force the establishment to face up to these challenges? Well, I think uh, it's down to elements in the legal profession, elements within the society, and obviously those who are affected. So um, there was a, a civil action, I think it's still ongoing, which was brought against Kitson, General Kitson, and the Ministry of Defence. And so that may be a route to which, you know, more information can be obtained and you know, remember how transition occurred in Spain and in South Africa. Sometimes it's not the best thing because certain, and even in Northern Ireland itself, you know, that certain people were released from jail and, and, and things like that. But uh, this sort of truth and reconciliation may go further. I'm only restricting this to this Northern Ireland situation. Uh, if I were an Irish Catholic Republican, I, I probably wouldn't be so objective about it. I certainly wouldn't, um, I still think uh, the Tony Blair war in Iraq, the Jack Straw and Mark Callan torture, kidnapping, uh, accessory to that. I think those should not be left, that they should be strenuously pursued. Well, that's my last question, really. Why should we bother about this? Yes. You know, because you could say, well, I mean, people do say this kind of thing. Oh, well, it's in the past. Let's move on. Or obviously, politicians say that sort of thing quite a lot. But I think there's that mentality with people generally as well. You know, this is something that has happened. Okay, maybe bad things were done, but, you know, life is so complicated and things of the day are important. So why bother about these things that, well, not that long ago, but, you know, they are something that we can shut the door on and forget? I think the simple answer to that is to think about history and, you know, how we view the past, the present, and, and the future. In other words, the mistakes of the past, they come back to haunt us. Yes. A lot of these things go against the rule of law and justice. And I think as society has evolved, uh, certainly within the uh, United Kingdom and a lot of Western uh, nations who consider themselves and are seen to be advanced in many instances. The issue of fundamental human rights is something which has been developed to the extent that it really is untenable for these sorts of things to go on in, in the present and to go unpunished. Yeah. So I think, for instance, if we look at the war in Iraq, Suez, I don't believe there was any closure about that. There are many parallels with Anthony Eden's taking Britain to war in Suez. And if more strenuous uh, scrutiny had been put on that and uh, perhaps some form of criminality attached to it, then we wouldn't be discussing the possibility mm. of Tony Blair being tried here for crimes in Iraq. And it's the same thing with the issue of torture. That was part and parcel of dealing with the insurgency against the Mau Mau. And I think that has come up into the public eye in recent times. 
ex Mao Mao claiming uh, compensation. But if that had been arrested at the time, then it wouldn't have been transferred intact to Northern Ireland. It wouldn't have been transferred to Iraq because although Abu Ghraib is the central focus, uh, British troops were apparently involved in, in acts of torture. So this repetition, the same thing dealing brutally with insurgencies in Malaya and Kenya, repeated in the troubles in Northern Ireland and I believe repeated in Iraq. Again, although the situation was uh, mainly dominated by the Americans, if you think about it, all those bombs going off in Basra that were attributed to suicide bombers, that was never proved. And you may remember an incident where two British Special Forces soldiers were captured by Iraqi police. You know, they were dressed in Arab gear, you know, with all the uh, accoutrements of uh, guns and, you know, grenades, etc. They did have a, a plausible excuse that they were in transit from a part of the Gulf and were relaying a message. But there is that suspicion that uh, these soldiers may have been planting bombs. And that was part of that Kitson doctrine of if you plant a bomb and it's uh, you don't know who planted it for sure, uh, but given the Iraqi situation, it could only have been Sunnis planting that bomb in the Shiite heartland, you get the idea of the transfer of Kitson's uh, doctrine from Malay and Kenya to Northern Ireland and to Iraq so that the British army, which was under pressure and was actually under-resourced, you will take a lot of pressure off them as an army of occupation if you can get the Shiites and the Sunnis to fight it out. So I think there's a heavy suspicion. I don't have the evidence as one has in regard to Northern Ireland, but it's that heavy suspicion that uh, the Americans and certainly the British would have applied that in their managing of uh, the insurgencies and the general occupation of, of, of Iraq, which, as we know, is, uh, was effectively uh, an illegal war and occupation. Suspicions are indeed very important, even though there are some irresponsible people who would accuse people who have suspicions of being conspiracy theorists. Because <laughs> um, this takes us back to the importance of history, takes us back to the beginning of our conversation, how very, very crucial it is to have an historical perspective on these kinds of things. Because, as you say, if you can actually learn the lessons of history, maybe these things won't be repeated. That comes again back to Tom Harris of The Telegraph, uh, where he's saying, oh, you know, we should be grown-ups and try to learn lessons. Well, in, in a sense, not quite the lessons that he's trying to tell us we should learn. Yes. We're trying to learn lessons, are we not, by considering these things. Um, I want, just before we end, to clarify something. We have mentioned it in a couple of times, I think, but I do want to stress it because I think it is important. We're not calling for lynchings here. <laughs> you know, we, we are calling for justice. There's no insistence that anybody is guilty. You know, I do have to say, I think there are too many people in the alt media who are too quick to say such things. You know, I think we have our suspicions. We may have acute suspicions. And that's right and proper that we should have those if the evidence points us in that direction. But what we are calling for, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole of this conversation seems to be saying this, that we, we are calling for those against whom a case can be made to face honest and open trial so that justice might actually be done. And if such people, it turns out they're found to be not guilty, well, you know, that's all well and good. But this is not something that can just be taken for granted, especially, you know, given the weight of the suspicions involved here that we've been talking about. 
So I do thank you, Adyinka, for coming on the programme. It really has been, I often say conversations have been fascinating, but this one, I've hardly got a word for. It has been truly fascinating. Um, thank you ever so much for carving out this time at the end of what I do understand has been your busiest, very busiest day of the week, being on your feet all day and talking all day. And uh, thank you ever so much for coming on and my best wishes for the publication of your article, which I think has been published, is it this month? Um, I should certainly get a review published, but um, it may be sometime next year in the spring. And who will publish it? Uh, it's an intelligence uh, journal based in the United States. Uh-huh. Well, I very much hope that article will open up further conversation and thought and hopefully will lead to action in the pursuit of justice. Thank you ever so much again, Adyinka, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Julian. Well, thank you for listening to that interview with Adyinka Mackinday. As I said before, and you can probably hear my uh, my little son here. Uh, I'm, I'm holding him as I speak. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the program, if you haven't heard the first part, please do go and listen to that because I think it's well worth listening to. Next week, we're going to be speaking with Mark Antonacci of test the shroud foundation um, mark has written this i think excellent book called test the shroud which has the longer title test the shroud at the atomic and molecular levels and although i am i still remain somewhat skeptical about the shroud of turin i have to say that is a very interesting book indeed very well researched um, he has spent three and a half decades looking into that issue and has some ex- extremely interesting suggestions so it is worth it's going to be worth listening to that one After that, we shall break for the Christmas weekend. And then the following weekend, I'm very much hoping we will be speaking again with the Fireside Nephilim Boys, like we did last year, which was a great deal of fun. And I'm hoping it will be again. And uh, that will be posted as near as I can get to 12 midnight between New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. So I'm looking forward to that. And thereafter, we'll be speaking to Dr. Martin Erdman, then Tom Secker, and I'm hoping Graham McQueen shortly after that. And... uh, Uh, that will be for the beginning of 2017 so thanks very much Uh, you have been listening to me Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com and I very much look forward to speaking to you again next week